see what we have here first. Our friend Doug. Uh, oh, Doug, it looks like you've hit the bullseye. Yeah, that's good. Yes, but the target was Philippians 4.13, and you put contentment in God. I'm sorry, we can't accept that. <laughs> Let's try Helen. Helen, what do we have here? Well, when I think of this verse, it reminds me that I can tolerate having a three-year-old car run one mile and not scream when they forget to put room in my medium caramel mocha, sugar-free, skim, extra hot, extra shot, extra whip. Hold on. Hold on here. And back to downer down. Paul wrote that verse from prison about contentment. Well, that's a good point. Too bad we're playing Miss the Point. <laughs> that's another 4.13 oh. points for Helen. Helen, what do you think? I can do all things. <laughs> that you can. And I may need to use that verse if I'm going to keep tolerating Doug. <laughs> but we'll be right back with more Misusing Scripture fun right here on... <laughs> yes. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to miss Doug. Anyone else going to miss Doug? I feel so bad for Doug. We are finishing up our series called Twisted, uh, talking through some of the most misused, misapplied, and misunderstood Scripture verses. And uh, this morning, if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, that's where we're going to be starting this morning. And uh, we've been going through three weeks now of Twisted, looking at these different topics We've understood and talked through things about what does it matter to God when I pray and how should I pray? Uh, what did Jesus really mean about judging others when he said judge not? What was he really talking about? And, and does it mean that we can never at all as a Christian make any kind of judgments for the point of encouragement? And so we talked a lot about that. Um, and then uh, obviously we're going to move in this week into a different topic. But before we get there, I do want to talk a little bit about why we're doing this. Um, I truly believe the whole reason we're doing this is we want to understand the truth of God's Word. I believe it's so vital that we understand God's Word not just as we want it to be, but the truth of God's Word. What is God's Word really talking about? Uh, I was listening a couple weeks ago to Ravi Zacharias. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of him or heard of his material that he puts out. Obviously, there's tons of videos on YouTube. Just an amazing, amazing apologist. Talks much to uh, philosophy and things like that, but also talking about the reality of the Christian faith and how it is um, philosophically correct and applicable to our lives. And so he's a great, great author, great speaker. Uh, when you listen to his videos, uh, I don't know about you, but I have to pause them a lot because he uses a lot of big words that I'm like, whoa, 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 I don't know what that means. Let me back that up and break out the dictionary. So, but he said something that was so true, and I love this. He said, truth is the greatest pursuit for mankind. Truth is the greatest pursuit for mankind. And that's what we want to do this morning, what we've been trying to accomplish. And I pray it's what you hope to accomplish every single time you open up the Word of God for yourself at home, that you're looking for the truth of God's Word. What does God's Word actually say? Because here's the reality of it. It matters what God's Word says. It matters for your eternity. Uh, we've sang some great songs this morning. How do I know I am complete in Him. How do I know that everything I could ever want or need, including salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the eternity of heaven, all of that reality that we live in every day as followers of Christ, how do I know that's really true? I know it because of His Word. I know it because of the truth of God's Word, and I want to pursue that truth. 
uh, this morning as we're going to be looking at a verse that is often not so much misapplied, but in reality misquoted, even uh, kind of written the wrong way to some people when they write this verse out. This verse here is kind of one that takes a little bit of work to understand because I think it's something we struggle with as Americans. And to get us to understand this, I want to ask a quick question. Just a simple question, and I want you to be honest. I always feel like when I say that, like, should I have to tell you to be honest? But be honest, okay? How many of you would say, and I don't have any stones or anything I'm going to throw at you, okay? But how many of you would say if you had a little bit more money, just a little bit more money, it would make your life easier or better in some way? How many of you would say that if I had just a little bit more money? Okay, keep your hand up for just a second. Some of you put them down real quick. Now I'm going to make you raise it even higher. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so look around, look around, okay? It's a reality, right? I think most of us would say, man, if I had just a little bit more money, I'm not talking about another million dollars or something, just a little bit more money, my life would be better, my life would be a little bit easier, or maybe a little more comfortable. Well, here's what we wanted to do. We're so excited to do this, and so um, don't freak out when I say this. Try to stay calm, okay? We at the leadership level, we talked about that, about how can we help our church family to have a little bit more comfortable life, and now to help those that are struggling. So here's what we did. Under three seats in the auditorium, just three though, is a $100 bill. So take a minute and see if you have that out under your chair. Go ahead and look. Go ahead. Anyone? Anyone? How many of you guys think I'm just making this up? How many of you guys looked anyway, just to be sure you didn't have $100? Don't look at, look at those hands. Those are people that you need to be helping today. Take them to lunch today. Like, $100? I could use $10. Where's, give me on this chair. Where's, obviously, you guys should know by now, I'm way too cheap to, as a pastor to even consider putting $300 in the auditorium. But I think this is a reality. Most of us, if we're really being honest, most of us would say that a little bit extra money would help us out in some way. Some of you pray this way. And it's okay to admit that this morning. It's okay to say that I've prayed and said, God... Man, I don't want a big house. I don't need a fancy house. Just a little bit more money. Can you just give me a little bit more money? And listen, by the way, we're going to get into this. A lot of pastors will teach and preach you that God's favor in your life is in direct comparison to how much money you do or don't make. People will tell you, man, if you get that raise, you have God's favor on your life. If you don't get that raise, you must not have God's favor on your life. You don't have as much faith as the one that got the raise if they know Christ. And we've been talking this, these last three weeks about how easy it is to take the word of God and make it say really whatever you want. We talked about it the first week. And again, I want to remind you, this is just an illustration. Do not apply this practically to your life this week. Paul says, when you get married, you become one. And then Paul says later, I beat my daily. Okay, now I could very easily make a scriptural argument that nobody in here wants to, well, some of you might want to apply it, but don't. Okay? Sandra and I were just talking the other day. We were getting ready in the morning. We have one, uh, one bathroom with the mirror, you know, it's like a shared mirror. And we were joking about, we've always had to share a mirror. And I said, I made some kind of an offhanded, sarcastic comment about it. I said, oh, honey, how joyful it's been these almost 12 years sharing a mirror with you. And it's perfect because she's just short enough. That I could stand, and I can do, and she can do her thing, and I can see, and it's great. It's awesome. It's like God just put us together, okay? So, so often we think, but man, God, if I had just a little bit more money, maybe if we could have two bathrooms or two vanities, or, man, if we could just have that car, or we could just go on that trip, 
Let's be honest. You ever been on Facebook and you see somebody going on their, like, their fifth vacation that year? And you're just like, oh, that's great. You're in Mexico. I'm taking my vacation to, like, Michigan Adventure. Okay, like, and it's going to, we're only going for a half hour because that's all I can afford. Like, you know, like, I mean, like, you ever see it and you're just like, really, God? Why do they get all the nice stuff? And you might say, I can't believe as a Christian you would ever think that. We all think this. And if you don't think it right now, you used to or you will. You know why? Because our culture, our American culture has ingrained in us this desire for just a little bit more. Just a little bit more will make me happy. Just a little bit more will make my life more enjoyable. And so I want to talk about our last verse of this series. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want to talk about this verse that is often misquoted. This this morning, the verse we're going to talk about, and it's misquoted as saying, money is the root of all evil. Most people will say that money is the root of all evil. Look at verse 10, 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some, listen to this now, which while some have coveted after, hungered for, lusted for that money, that more, while some have done this, they have even erred from the faith. I don't think this means they lost their salvation. I think this means that they drifted from that consistent, intimate walk with Christ. They've erred maybe in the faith in regards to God called them to do this, but you know what? This career makes a lot more money, and God will understand. I know he called me to be a missionary, but I can do this vocation, do that job, be a witness at my work, and therefore I'm good because I'm being a missionary at work. I mean, because at the end of the day, doesn't God want me comfortable? I mean, God doesn't want my family to have to go without, does he? I mean, my kids need to have iPhones. My kids need to have a nice house. My kids need to have, my family needs this. See how easy it is to convince yourself to just walk just a little bit from the faith. And then it says this, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Man, the reality of that verse is so powerful. Paul says, while they were seeking and pursuing this love, this desire, this lust for more money, they've actually pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The idea there, the word picture being taking a sword and stabbing yourself multiple times. That's the idea here. The other way it talks about this kind of sorrow in comparison in the language would be when Mary was at the foot of the cross and she looked up and she was wrecked with sorrow. That kind of a sorrow. Remember when Jesus was first born, they brought him to the temple. And Simeon said, you're going to basically through his life and death, he's going to pierce you through. You're going to be pierced through with many sorrows. That's the idea here of what Paul's talking about to Timothy. This brokenhearted, just a wretched feeling. And how in the world can that be if a little more money is supposed to make me better? A little more money is supposed to make me more happy. Why would that ever bring sorrow into my life? Because if you desire and you love the money, you will do whatever it takes to get more of it. And that means you will sacrifice things that in the long run will cause you hurt or sorrow. Paul's words here to Timothy must be understood for the Christian in America because I believe this is one that we really struggle with. And so here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God just to speak to us. I'm going to ask you to pray in your seats where you are. Just ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I don't want to ignore you anymore. I'm not going to quench you this morning. I want to hear what you have for me. I don't want to hear what this guy thinks about you or this guy thinks about the Bible. I want to hear what you have for me. 
Because listen, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. I don't have all this figured out. I'm learning it with you. But I pray together we will come to an understanding of what is God really talking about here. So let's pray and ask God to speak. Heavenly Father, we want to hear from you. We don't need another sermon, another Sunday, another church service. We don't need just one more Sunday morning where we just go through the motions of just doing our thing. I pray that we would continually and intimately invite you into our lives. Thank you for those that know you this morning as Savior. But I do pray, kind of a special prayer for those that don't know Christ this morning. If there's anyone in this room or under the sound of my voice that does not know you as Savior, I pray that this morning, right now, as they're hearing these words, they would open their hearts to you. That Holy Spirit, you would convict them of their sin. Show them the possibility of righteousness in Christ. Lead, guide, and direct them to the foot of the cross that they will receive by faith the gift of salvation. We don't get your salvation by works or by doing good things or by baptism or by going to church. We receive your salvation only through the profession of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and rose again. That is what buys us, offers to us eternal security. I pray that we'd receive that this morning if we need to. But for those of us that know Christ, I pray, Holy Spirit, give us wisdom, discernment from your word today, that we would apply the truth to our lives and live differently in reaction to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what in the world is Paul talking about here in this regard of love of money? So I want to dive a little bit deeper. You guys have your notes there. And uh, in review, we talked about uh, the very couple weeks we were doing this. For, for first couple weeks we were doing this. Uh, there's three keys to Bible interpretation, three keys to understanding Scripture, understanding the verse in context, using Scripture to interpret Scripture, and then applying what we've learned. That's in your notes at the very top. But to dig a little deeper into 1 Timothy 6.10, the first question I have to ask is, how do we know if we love money? Because isn't it often that we, letter A, will often dismiss this truth in our lives? Paul says, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. And we'll go, well, good, because I don't love money. I mean, other people do, but I don't. I don't love money. Now, those, you know, Bill Gates types or those other big wigs and, you know, the billion-dollar CEOs, they obviously lo love money. They need to hear this verse. But we live in Emily City. We live in, in country, rural America. We don't love money like those big city people do, right? I mean, we don't have that kind of a lust and a desire. We're very quaint and simple people out here in the country, right? This is for other people. This is not for us, obviously. So we'll read this, but obviously it's not really for you. You just kind of push it back, right? You just rake it to the next row behind you, right? That's what we do in church sometimes. Well, man, shovel it sometimes. You, you need some of this. Here, here's a little bit more of that in your life. Would you get yourself together? Clean yourself up. Jeez, okay? What was Paul talking about here? So how do we know if we love money? I truly believe that Solomon actually gave us a great definition of and for the love of money. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, whoever loves money, so we're in the same camp, right? Those that love money, whoever loves money, never has enough. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Now, I got to kind of let you know something. I kind of I kind of played a little little pulled a punch on you, kind of, okay? I asked you just a little bit ago, how many of you would say with a raised hand, if a little more money would make your life easier or better? Solomon says that if you're never satisfied with your income, 
then you have a love for money. So some of you raised your hand just out of reaction, like, yeah, I could use a little more money. And what that shows is that maybe I'm not quite as satisfied with my income as I thought I was. This isn't to, like, make you feel guilty or, like, to point anything out. I'm just pointing out the reality that we just do it intrinsically. We just kind of, out of habit, think more money equals better. More money equals better life. That's what we've been taught to think in our culture. And Solomon says, whoever loves money never has enough of it. I'll be honest. There's been times in my life I'm like, man, I could use a little more money. And then God reminds me, is it really the money that I need more of, or do I just need more of understanding him and what he has for me in that season? Because sometimes he might provide more financially for you. Sometimes he may not. It's not the money that we're talking about here. We always want just a little more, and then I'll be happy. Just a little more, just a little more, just a little more. I think we can fall into this trap very simple and very easily. So I want to step back and see the full context of what the Apostle Paul was telling Timothy about this love of money. One of the things in context is understanding something called theme of a text or the main point or the main feel or the flow of the text. And so step back a little bit here. What is the theme of 1 Timothy 6? Well, you're taking notes there. It says it there. The theme is godliness, not money. The theme is godliness, not money. Look back up 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6. It says here, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. I've done a lot of funerals, and I think that's pretty true. Carry nothing out. Verse 8, And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Look back up there at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. What is the theme of this? I truly believe the theme of 1 Timothy 6 is godliness, not money alone. We can take nothing with us when we leave this world. You have heard it said before. I've heard it said before. There has never been a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Some of you maybe even heard a joke. They go something like this, and I'm not a big joke teller, so forgive me ahead of time. But there was a rich man who decided he was going to save up for eternity, so he put all this money in a briefcase. And he put the briefcase in the attic. And his wife was like, what are you doing? And he says, well, I figure it this way. I'm going to put all this money in a briefcase and put it in the attic, and when I die, I'll grab it on my way up. Well, the guy dies. And his wife goes up in the attic. And sure enough, guess what's sitting in the attic? The briefcase. And she just kind of shook her head. Said, that old fool. I told him he should have put the briefcase in the basement and grabbed it on his way down. <laughs> Here's the reality of it. <laughs> no matter where you're going, you ain't taking nothing with you. The only thing you take with you is your faith in Christ, your relationship with Jesus Christ, or the lack thereof. If you know Christ, when you leave this world, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the Bible says. If you have a faith in Christ, you've received him as salvation, you take nothing material, but you take your spirit and that connection you have with Christ all the way through eternity. Equally so. The Bible makes it clear that once we leave this world and we don't know Christ, we take that lack of knowledge with us. And we will suffer an eternity in separation from him in a place called hell. 
Now, I know today the topic of hell is really not popular. There are entire books about how hell's not really real. It's, it's made up. It's a bunch of uh, just fear-based stuff to freak people out to get them saved. There's no real hell. A loving God would never do that. Here's our God. Our God is so loving that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, be buried, and rise again. And all he asks of us is just to receive that for ourselves. It is completely open to anyone that would receive it. But it's that we in our sin and our selfishness and our rebellion reject that loving gift from a good and loving Heavenly Father. His justice, his holiness remains intact, and there must be a penalty for sin. God is not just loving. He is way too big a God to be only one attribute. See, he is loving, and he is gracious, but he's also holy and merciful. Justice is also part of his attributes. And so when we leave this world, we will either take our relationship with him or the lack thereof with us, but we take nothing material. And I am always amazed that we build such great kingdoms here, and we leave it all behind. We build such, we spend so much of our lives building a great kingdom and forgetting that we're investing in this life for eternity. Man, we need to realize this. There is no way you're taking it with you. The Apostle Paul says contentment is key. You want godliness in your life? You want the righteousness of Christ to be evident to others? Live with contentment. Be satisfied with what God has given you. Doesn't mean you can't have dreams and hopes and desires and work hard for things. You can absolutely do that. But if those things don't happen, are you still content in just Jesus? Are you good with just Jesus? If everything else was taken away, is Jesus enough? Or is it Jesus plus something will make me happy? I love what one author said about this idea of contentment. Contentment can make a poor person rich. And discontentment can make a rich person poor. Contentment can make a, rich, a poor person rich. Discontentment can make a rich person poor. How does Paul define contentment? Look again at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Really? If you ate this morning and you got clothes on, which... Okay, yeah, okay, everyone does. The nursery might be a different story at this point. We're already, you know, 25 minutes into the message. They probably have already, like, unclothed. Diapers have been thrown away, like, freedom, right? We're just running around like crazy, okay? Did anybody's children love to just get naked as when they were little? Raise your hand because if your child attends our church still, I need to know this. This is great material. I really was praying Kelly would raise her hand. I'm like, come on, Kelly, please raise her hand. I got, and then I just make up, it's Jeff, Matt, or Wes. I'll just pick any of them. It doesn't matter. There'll be different ones at different days, too. You know, your mom told the whole church, you run around naked as a kid. Um, no, I mean, if you have food in your belly and clothing on your back, this is crazy to me. It doesn't say how much food, and it doesn't say how much clothing. It might be one meal a day. Maybe one outfit for the week. It doesn't tell us that. It just says, if you have food and raiment, clothing, be content. But we struggle with this. We struggle with this. We think, wow, really? I mean, maybe if you throw in AC, right? Food, clothing, and AC. <laughs> food, clothing, and uh, 
fridge full of food. Okay, food, clothing, and a closet full of clothes. Man, then I'd be content. Then I would be happy. Another author wrote this, and I wanted to share this. The richest people are not those who have the most. The richest people are not those who have the most, but who need the least. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. The richest people are not those who have the most, but who need the least. It's when we can appreciate the simple and pure blessings of God that we are living the richest life, the abundant life. It's when we understand. Man, Jeff, I wish you were in here like five minutes sooner, bud. Um, Kelly will catch you up. Um, <laughs> he looked at me like, what? What did I do? Nice shirt, by the way. Uh, so when you think about this idea, this riches of life, it's not the abundance of stuff. It's the abundance of Christ and his blessings in our life that will allow us to live the abundant life. So number two in your notes there, now that we've kind of understood the love of money, the root of all evil really means that when I desire it more than anything else, it will drive me to do things and to compromise things and to sacrifice things because I think I need the stuff. So number two, so money must be bad, right? If we're talking about all this, then money in and of itself must be bad because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, that's what we hunger for. And if I just would not hunger for any money and just get rid of all my money and live a poverty life, then I'd be able to really enjoy the blessings that God has given me. Letter A in your notes there, money is not bad. However, the love of money is deadly, spiritually and potentially physically. We must realize this truth. We cannot fall into the ditches on either side of the road. So often we hear either prosperity gospel or prosperity gospel. I mean poverty gospel or prosperity gospel. Those are the two ditches on the side of the road. And we need to walk the road of the word of God. That means that, listen, when people preach you're, preach, you're always supposed to be rich, you're always supposed to be rich, you're always supposed to be healthy, never any sickness, never any problems, everything's great all the time, everything's good. That doesn't work in some places. And we said this last week, if I can't preach it everywhere, I shouldn't preach it anywhere. It's kind of hard to go to Syria or Iraq and tell a Christian mom whose child just died of a bombing or child who just died of malaria because they couldn't afford a $10 mosquito net to tell them, no, no, God wants to richly bless you financially. And if you're not blessed financially and in good health, then God doesn't have favor on you. That wouldn't fly there. It flies here. It's great on TV. doesn't fly there. Equally so, I can't get up here and tell you that God wants you to be poor and never have any possessions of any kind. And the more poverty-stricken you are, the closer to God you will be. Again, that's not in the Word of God. So we don't fall in the ditches of prosperity or poverty. We walk the road of God's blessing. The reality is that wealth in and of itself is a gift. It is a blessing of God. And with it, His people can do great works for His glory. That's a truth, by the way. Wealth from God is a blessing, and it can be used to do great things for God's glory. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 says it this way, But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. See, wealth in and of itself is not bad. It's not money that is bad. It's the love or the, the, the lusting for money that is bad. It's putting money in the wrong spot in your life. Letter B in your notes there, the key is we don't ever apologize for his blessing. We maximize it. We have 
get this. As, as a Christian, and as a church person, as, as just someone living in this world in America today, you have to get this. We don't apologize for the blessings of God, financially or otherwise. We maximize the blessings of God for his glory. So what does that look like? What does that mean? I truly believe that some people in this room have been blessed financially. Now, what that looks like for you varies to somebody else, differs. But you've been blessed financially. And maybe at times in your Christian walk, if you've been blessed financially, you've actually felt, felt guilty about that. You've felt bad about your blessings financially and think, uh, uh, no, no, I'm not really, I'm not really rich. Uh, I don't really have a lot of things. I'm sorry. You're like apologizing for the blessings of God in your life. And it's amazing because we don't do this in any other blessing. We don't do this. We don't apologize for the blessings of God with our family. Like if someone were to say, man, your kids are great. You don't go, oh, yeah, well, I really hate them. I don't really like them. They're horrible kids. No. You say, oh, thank you. Yeah, they're a blessing from God. Right? Man, your marriage is such a great example to me and to my wife. And just thank you for that. Oh, yeah, well, we can't really stand each other. We're actually going to, you know, we want to kill each other most days. I mean, she just tolerates me. No, no. You say that jokingly, but really what do you say? Man, I'm blessed to be in this relationship. We don't apologize for those other blessings. Why do we apologize for financial wealth? Because we feel like we should feel bad. But here's the thing. We don't apologize for the blessings of God. We maximize the blessings of God. We do this in every area of our lives. But this morning, specifically, we're talking about how we can do this financially. So letter th- or number three in your notes. What do we do now? This is the application question. What do we do now? How do we maximize the blessing of God in our lives Letter A there, the Apostle Paul gives a challenge to the rich. Look at verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. A challenge to the rich. It says here, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, the Bible says. You see, now many of us read that text and we do like what we did with earlier with the love of money. We just instantly dismiss it and put it on somebody else. We read in 1 Timothy 6, 17, charge them that are rich. And you disconnect. You're like, well, poo, good. That's not me. I'm not rich. Hallelujah. I don't have to listen anymore. So what is rich then in this text? What is rich? Newsflash. You live in America. You're rich. You might say, oh, come on now. No, I'm not. Think of this text globally. Don't just think of your area in America. Think global context. We always think that the next tax bracket up, that's rich from us. But taking this text in the global context, we would understand that we are rich and greatly blessed. Just some statistics to give you to help you put this in perspective. If you have your own transportation, meaning you own rent, lease, or have bought some form of a vehicle, that places you in the top 10% of wealth in the world. Just owning your own vehicle places you in the top 10%. If you make $25,000 a year or more, that places you in the top 10% in wealth in the world. 25000 I believe it's the statistics I was looking at said 50000 or more places you in the top 1% or 2% globally. Let that sink in for a moment. If you own your own transportation, some of you have multiple vehicles. Some of you, when you turn 16, just got a vehicle. Now, it may have been barely running, but it was still a vehicle. 
My first car I ever owned was a 90 Buick Century. Had 280,000 miles on it. I got it in 2002, 2001. Man, I drove that thing till it just it died. It was great. But just having that makes us globally considered rich. Now, does that mean that we don't have struggles? Does that mean that we don't have people in our country that are truly in poverty? Of course we do. There are many people in our country that make much less than $25,000 a year. So I'm not saying there aren't poor people in our country. What I'm saying is, for the vast majority of us, we would be considered rich. Some of you actually drive that 10% wealth car or vehicle. You actually leave this building, you drive that vehicle, and you put it in its own little house. That's right. Your car has its own house. Call it a garage. Some of your garages could house like entire villages of other people. Some of you have pool barns. Pool barns that are bigger than could hold most communities in third world countries. But this is what we need to understand. Is that bad? No, it's not bad. We don't apologize for the blessings of God. We maximize the blessings of God. Letter B. How do we combat the love of money? How do we combat the love of money? What is Paul's challenge to the rich? 1 Timothy 6. Look at verses 18 and 19. That they do good. That they, and that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I wanted to read a different translation for this text to give us a little bit of a different idea of what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, if you are rich in this world, in this present world, there's some things I want to challenge you to do. There's some ways that I want to encourage you to live. Again, are there poverty-stricken places in our country? Are there people that are truly going without? Yes, very much so. If you've ever driven to any big cities, even some cities in Michigan, Saginaw, Flint, Detroit, you're going to see homeless people. You're going to see people begging. There are people in need. I'm not discounting that. I don't think every American is rich. What I'm saying is the vast majority of Americans globally would be considered rich. Globally would be considered rich. Listen to what Paul challenges uh, Timothy to share with the church. Verse 18. This is the New American Standard. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. It's amazing to me. Whenever we put our mind on an internal perspective, it changes how we live the day to day. Whenever I stop thinking about the immediate and I start thinking about eternity, my whole paradigm changes. My whole list of priorities change. It's all of a sudden, it's not so much about making the money. It's about investing in others' lives. It's about investing in my children's life or investing in my spouse or investing in my family. All of a sudden, that, that money and that vacation and those things that we try to fight for and we hunger for and we desire for, it seems to go farther and farther down the list the more I understand an eternal perspective of why was I even created. Why was I even placed in this planet? Why was I even given breath in my lungs? Why am I a follower of Christ? I am a follower of Christ. We are followers of Christ to make disciples, to lead others to Jesus. And along the way, he's going to bless us various, variously in various different ways. 
Some of you will have a husband or a wife. Some of you may never marry. Some of you may have children. Some of you may never have children. Some of you may adopt children. Some of you may try and it never will work out. Some of you may live very comfortably the rest of your life. Some of you may live paycheck to paycheck the rest of your life. I don't know. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. What matters is the life you now have live to the glory of God. That's what really matters. We talked about it last week. We have been given salvation from Christ. We did nothing. He did everything. I just receive and believe it. I'm given eternal life and forgiveness of all my sins, past, present, and future. It doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. But all he says is, will you just live for me? No works. Just live for me. And so many people, they come to a church and they raise their hand and they say a prayer and they go, man, God, you're not making my life any better. You must not really be the God that they said you were, so I'm just, I'm done. Never really knowing the true power of a conversion and a life surrendered to Christ and all of a sudden the circumstances don't matter as much. Listen, life can suck at times. Life is unfair. I've said it so many times, I'll say it again. My stepdad was right. Life is unfair, wear a helmet. Because you never know what's going to happen. Some of you are going through some horrible things. Some of you are having the best week of your life. It's just life. And so what do we do? What's our constant? Our constant has to be Jesus alone. Not just, not the lack of struggle or the abundance of struggle. Not the lack of finances or the abundance of finances. It has to be Jesus alone. Paul says, I have learned whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content, whether I am satisfied, stuffed. Okay? We did some open houses yesterday. Love open houses. You put like 10 bucks in a card and you eat for free. It's great. <laughs> All you can eat. And believe me, I have two children. We utilize all you can eat. Anybody else do this? You can admit this. It's okay. It's church. Jesus understands. Okay. Do you ever plan your open houses to correlate with lunch and dinner so you don't got to cook anything or make any food? Anybody? My wife was like, she's like, okay, listen. A couple weeks ago, she's like, now we're going to do this one for lunch and this one for dinner, and that's it. I'm not making anything today. I was like, okay, honey, whatever you say. Well, then yesterday, we were blessed to be able to attend Victoria Blount's open house and then Morgan uh, Gilbert, one of our students in our youth ministry, graduated. And they messed us up. They both put their open houses at the same time. It was like 2 to 9 and 3 to 7. I was like, well, what in the world? So I was going to call Morgan and be like, you need to open up that food like at noon because I'll be there at 1230. Get it going, okay? No, it was great. But man, you ever just leave an open house and you get in your car, that 10% car, and you're just like, I ate too much. Anybody ever? And you're just like, oh, oh, that was stupid. And then you go to another one and what do you do? Oh, look, they got chicken. Let me get some chicken and some ribs. Oh, that's great. Okay. I'm going to my Jim's house later today. That He's got a new smoker, just so you know. Uh, ribs, I think he was making. I don't know, all kinds of stuff. So I'll be over about 1.30 today to get those. Um, you guys can join me if you want. He loves having people over the house. It's great. Don't even call. Um, Abby enjoys that too, where you just show up unexpected. They love that. So just show up. You don't got to bring any food. Bring your kids. They got a pool. Throw them in the pool. Have some food. Leave them for a couple hours. It's great. They love that. So, but we have to trust. Paul says, whether I'm stuffed or whether I'm starving. Listen to this, this spectrum. Stuffed, I mean, just overfilled, which, by the way, you shouldn't do that. I was joking. I do it, and you shouldn't do it. It's really bad for you. Or you're starving. You haven't eaten in days. 
he says, no matter what, man, I'm content in Jesus. But I love that he says something. He says, I have learned to be that way. You know what that tells me? It's a journey. It's a process. If you're not there yet, by the way, we'll never be completely there, right, until we see him. We're always going to battle with this stuff. But as you walk that journey, be encouraged, keep going, and don't judge those that aren't where you are yet. If somebody else is like, oh, man, I really need more money, blah, 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 don't you dare whip out these notes and be like, you're a heretic and you're going to hell. The Apostle Paul says, you need to stop loving money, you sinner. Okay, no, 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 no. You love them right where they are. You say, man, I'm just so thankful for all the blessings of God. We maximize the blessings of God. We maximize them. And what does Paul say to do? With good works. He says here in verses 18 and 19, he says, I instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Man, God has blessed you financially. Guess what? You maximize the blessings by praising him and being willing to give to those in need. Be willing to give to others. And some of you do this. We are such a giving church. Can I just take a second to brag on our church for a moment? Man, it's amazing to me. A couple months ago, there was a, a, an issue that came up about uh, getting some transportation for an event. And then just in the last couple weeks, the transportation got really expensive, just out of the blue. And the people that were putting the event together were like, man, we don't know what we're going to do, blah, blah, And you know what was crazy? I looked at the person and I said, just do it. I know we'll take care of it. You know how great a confidence I have that our church is so giving that I know we can just step up by faith and God will just use our church to take care of it? Because time and time again, our church has shown that we do not love the money. We're thankful for the blessing and we use it for his glory. And I'm so blessed to pastor a church that is so giving, so generous. I cannot express to you how deeply just, just satisfying it is to know how blessed we are as a church and to see people being blessed as they give. And when we start being generous, we'll understand that's how we live, truly live a life that is worth living. You see, how do I combat the love of money? Poverty is not the antidote for the love of money. Poverty is not the antidote for the love of money. More money isn't the antidote for the love of money. Generosity is the antidote for the love of money. If you feel yourself drifting into thinking, I just need a little more, a little more, a little more, stop yourself and say, Lord, who can I bless today? Who can I bless financially today? I truly believe the best place to start with learning how to be generous, and I'm just going to say this, and I truly believe it, is in the church. I truly believe with tithe. It's the best place to start. When I start to realize that everything that God has given me, I give back 10% to him. Now, some of you are like, I don't really think I can give 10%. That's okay. You give 1%. Give a half of 1%. Give 5%. Give 35%. It's not up to number. It's about, man, what is God doing in your heart? Some of you, if you gave a dollar, that would be like someone else giving a million dollars. And that's okay because God sees the heart of the worshiper. It's not about the size of the gift. It's about, man, God, I don't want to love money. I don't want to pursue the love of money. I just want to be generous with what you're giving me. Some of you have been blessed financially and you're able to do more. You can bless more people. Maybe you've experienced it where you went out and you just bought a whole box of food for somebody and just dropped it off at their house. You could only do that because you were blessed financially. Some of you have taken missionaries and given entire amounts of money to them so they can go to the field. You couldn't do that unless you were blessed with wealth. Some of you aren't as blessed with wealth. You're not able to do that. Guess what? That's okay. 
Don't you dare feel bad for that or think, oh, I'm not as good as them. No, no, no. We're all blessed by God at different points in our life to just use what we have for his glory. So just use what you have for his glory. Be generous. If you have time, some of you are like, well, I can't give money, but I have some free time. And you mow a lawn for someone. You go and help a widow. You go help someone in the community. You just, when it's snowing out, you go grab a shovel. You go shovel some sidewalks. Guess what? You are being generous, and God is seeing that good work for his glory. We're not saved by our works, but our salvation will produce good works. What did Jesus say? Let them see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Man, it's not about working so that I can keep God happy. It's, man, God, you have given me everything in salvation. I just want to please you by allowing your glory to be seen in my life. Because I exist for your glory. Man, I'm here just to serve you. And I serve you by serving others. I've truly seen in our own church... Maybe you're struggling with this idea of tithing. I don't know what I can give. I don't even know if I can give. I've seen in our own church over the years, we went through a season of financial distress as a church to the point where we were trying to figure out what we could sell to keep putting money in the bank account to pay the mortgage. Oh man, we could probably do this and we could probably do that. And we could probably do this and we, could cut, we cut back so much financially. We stopped spending money on stuff. We were just being so tight budget. We actually had what's called a zero budget, which means every single expense had to be approved before it was expense. There was a point where we had a couple hundred dollars in our church checking account. It was tough. I'm just being honest with you. It was tough. But you know what? We had the savings account with some money in it. And there were some people that were really on the fence about this. What do we do? Do we dip into the savings? Do we not? We need to hold on to that. And it became very clear to me. The Spirit was kind of showing me, man, that savings account is becoming a security blanket to you. Like you're trusting more in that savings account than you're trusting in me. I'm not against savings accounts. I'm not against being a good steward. We need to be, and we will always do, as long as I'm a pastor, we'll always do our best to be as good a steward as we can be. But we're not trusting in money. We're trusting in our Savior. And this is amazing. This is not me. This is not the leadership. This is God. The minute we said, you know what? God has blessed us with that savings account. We're going to take the money and use it for his church. And do you know that after about three months of doing that, all of a sudden, the money started going up a little bit, and a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And now it's been about two years. We haven't even touched the savings account. And God is just blessing. Why? Not because we did this faith thing and we, you know, called the hotline and some guy on TV prayed for us. That's not what we did. Okay? We, by faith, said, God, you've already blessed us with this. We're just and trust you with the results. He may have got that savings account down to $10 for all I know. I don't know. But what I do know is the minute we started stepping out by faith and just saying, God, we know you'll take care of it. God, we know if if you don't do it this way, you'll take care of it a different way and we're going to trust you anyway. And it was tough. It was scary. I'm not going to lie. I was only the pastor for maybe a year and a half. And I'm going to these board meetings and the guys are looking at the bottom line like, hey, buddy, what's going on here? (laughs) It took a lot of faith. There were some great men in our church that rallied around us and said, we're going to do this thing. And so last year was the very first year that we ended the year since 2011. It was the first year we've ended in the black and not in the red. Every year, 2012, 13, 14, and 15, we ended in the red. But it was amazing to watch God make that difference get closer and closer and closer and closer. And then this year, this last year, we ended in the black for the very first time. And I'm not saying all that to say, man, this church is all about money. We're not at all about money. What I'm telling you about is we're all about Jesus. And you know what? It's just like anything else. You trust him with your kids. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to use you and use them for his glory. Man, it's amazing. The minute we let go of things that we think we can handle, 
the tighter we hold on to those things, the more we realize we can't handle them. And we just do more damage and do more damage. But the minute you let it go, some of you are struggling with a, a family member that has an addiction. Or maybe you yourself have an addiction of some kind. Gambling, eating, alcohol, drugs, pornography, Facebook, shopping. I don't know what it is. So many people will hold so tight that you have a husband or a wife or a child or a loved one that's in addictions and you hold it so close, I can fix them, I can fix them, I can fix them. And all you're doing is seemingly just enabling them and they're just getting worse and worse and you're like, I don't understand. You have an addiction of some kind and you think, oh, I can fix it, I can do it, I have the power, I just got to focus myself and use my willpower. And you find yourself falling over and over and over again. Man, when you give it to Jesus, that temptation will always be there. But listen, you give it to Jesus, and he starts taking that from you. And all of a sudden, as long as you continually give it to him, you find yourself gaining victory and gaining strength. That loved one, you give them to Jesus, and God starts doing a work in their life. And maybe they never change, but all of a sudden, you see it differently. And you have a peace and a comfort that he's doing in your life. And I don't know how God is going to reveal this to you or how he's working this in your life, but I'm here to tell you that the minute you decide to give it to him, whether it's your finances, or whether it's your, your very life, your children, your spouse, whatever, he will take it and use it for his glory. So in closing, how do we resist the love of money practically? How do we practically resist the love of money in a world that shoves it down our throats? It's everywhere. I truly believe one key in summary of the message today is that we understand that when money promises to meet our deepest needs— we believe that only Christ can provide those needs. Money promises happiness, security, and significance. Happiness, if I had just a little bit more, then I'd be happy. Security, oh man, look at my 401k, look at my savings account, look at my retirement fund. Man, I'm set. I've got security. And then significance. Because when you drive up to that event or that family get together in the brand new whatever, and you get out and you're, that's up, yeah, it's a 2017. It's great. It's got everything. I don't even got to even steer it. It drives itself. It's crazy. When we, he did everything, right? He did seats, foot massagers down by the feet. It's crazy. And everyone's like, oh, man, that's so cool. And you're like, yeah, I know, I'm pretty cool. That's the significance that we think money will bring us. But here's the truth of it. It's fleeting. Ask anybody that lost in 2008, how much security did they really have in 2007? Their, their homes, oh, no, yeah, I know, we almost got it paid off. It's great. We refinanced it five or six times because we bought some vehicles with that money. But, no, it's great. We're, we're going we're gonna to make a killing on this house. 2008 happens, and all of a sudden they're upside down in their house. Oh, no, no, I got all these stocks, and it's great, man. I'm, gonna, I'm set to make a killing. Gone. You see, money promises happiness. It promises security, and it promises significance, but it's all fleeting. Only Christ can bring true happiness. Only Christ can bring eternal security, and only Christ can bring the actual significance of being a son or daughter of God. Man, you are identified as his friend, as his brother, as his son, as his daughter. What greater significance do we need to just know that we know him and he knows us? It's amazing when you have more of Jesus, you crave the other stuff less. 
We enjoy the blessings of God. We don't apologize for it. We enjoy them and we maximize them. We may have it, but it doesn't have us. Amen? You may have it, but it doesn't have you. And so here's what I want to do in closing. We're going to pray and give an invitation. I just want you to come forward. If you want to bend a knee, maybe you want to come as, a, as an individual, a husband and wife, a mom and dad, a, a parent, whatever. You just want to come and pray. Really quick, I know it's kind of a specific message, but I just want you to pray about. Are you allowing your possessions, your finances, your stuff to control you? Have you fallen into the lie that a little bit more would make you happy? A little bit more would make you happy. A little bit more, just a little bit more. And then you get there, and guess what? A little bit more. Oh, man, I know I said that now that I'm making forty five, fifty thousand a year, but a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Is that you? And I want you to be honest with the Lord this morning and say, may God help me to be content with what I have right now. It doesn't mean we don't work hard and have dreams and all of that. That's fine, but it's in perspective. God, I have this dream. I would love to accomplish this one day for your glory. But if you don't have it for me, that's fine too. What did James say? You pray and you ask, but you ask just to consume it on your own lust. God's not going to hear that prayer. He's not going to answer that. But man, when I say, God, I want your glory to be known. And I pray that you would bless me financially so that I'm able to do the work you've called me to do if it is in your will. That's a different prayer altogether. And so whatever God is doing, however contentment is speaking into your life, I pray that you would just respond whether they're in your seats or here at the altar. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to have some music. We're not going to sing this morning. We're just going to have some some instrumental music. And I want you to just respond to him this morning. Respond to the Lord this morning. Whatever it is that he's speaking to you on, would you just say, God, help me to maximize the blessings of God in my life. Not to apologize for them, but to use them for your glory. And so let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to continue to speak into our lives. Heavenly Father, We thank you, Lord, so much for what you're doing in our life. Father, we pray that as we just come before you this morning, Lord, that you would just speak into our hearts. Allow us to be encouraged to know you more today than ever before. Father, I pray that as we spend some time just in prayer and reflection, I pray you'd give us the ability to evaluate where we are right now in our lives with you, to evaluate where we are in this area of contentment, and that we would trust you in all things. Father, I pray that for those that have been blessed financially, that they would not apologize for it or feel guilty for it, but they would utilize and maximize those blessings for your glory. Father, for those that are struggling this morning financially, that have fallen into the trap of thinking that their life would just be a little bit better if somebody just made a little bit more money. I know the temptation is so real. And Lord, there is a truth that our life will become more comfortable the more money we have, more secure. But I don't believe it's it's a legitimate security, legitimate happiness, because it's based solely on circumstance of finance. So I pray rather than that, that we would, if we are struggling financially, that we would trust you more and more. Father, nowhere in your word does it say that you're going to give us more money or that you're not going to provide wealth for us. It's not a promise you make, but you do promise that no matter where we go and no matter what we go through, that you will always provide for us what we need when we need it. So we thank you for that this morning, Lord. And pray that you would draw, speak, and lead God and direct in all these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If you'd like to come and pray, please come and do so. However the Lord is speaking to you on the area of contentment in your life, 
If you're struggling this morning, please come and pray. If you're falling into that trap of more is better, come and pray. Just say, God, give me wisdom in this. And if you've been blessed financially, maybe you want to come and pray and say, God, show me how to maximize your blessing in my life that I could be for your glory, all that I have. So would you continue to pray there as Laura plays? Again, would you want to come and pray? Come and bow a knee or pray there in your seats. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him this morning?